So this is our second week in our Onward series, and it's a brief journey that we're taking through three of the Psalms of Ascent. For thousands of years, these Psalms have been sung. They've been called God's dog-eared songbook, his OG playlist, whatever you want to say. As pilgrims moved from wherever they were living towards the city of, of Jerusalem, as they ascended the hills, they would proclaim these songs. And they would reflect the emotions that these pilgrims would feel after months and months of seeming solidarity. They would be like, oh, finally, finally we can proclaim the goodness of our God together. You know, last week we resolved, um, as we started our series, that our enjoyment of God and, and the, complete, the completeness that only He can bring that it would be deepened on this long journey with ourselves and with others. But the problem is we don't love long journeys. We don't love long suffering. We don't love patience. We like, we like the microwave oven. We like the GPS. We like the conveniences of, of quickness. But the beauty in these psalms is they remind us of who God is, even in the midst of our cultural understandings. And as the Jewish pilgrims, they would travel together, we're reminded today of a truth that every mother kind of longs for as we have Mother's Day today, is that there's something about being together in a unit, something to, to being together, and then within that togetherness, we find unity. Because every mother longs for unity. And so as I was studying for this um, this sermon today, I, I was thinking about unity, and you know, we, we saw the verse come up here a second ago, and it just says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell in unity. And it's like, oh, every mom is like, Yes. And for some reason, it brought, brought to mind these two brothers when I was a, when I was a principal, it was my first year as a principal. I'm changing names to, to make sure I'm saving the, the guilty parties here, but their names were Brian and Aaron. They were twin brothers. They looked nothing alike, um, but they were very passionate brothers. And these two brothers one day got in three fights in one day. All right, so Brian and Aaron fought each other, all right, to start with. And I was like, boys, really? Well, then later that day, they ended up fighting somebody else for talking trash about their brother. And I was like, okay. Okay, boys. And then a couple hours later, they got in a fight with each other again because they each fought the other boy who they actually liked and they shouldn't have been mad because they were just messing with them. And I was like, Brian and Aaron, really, three, three fights in one day. And mama called me, and I just love their mama, and she was like, man, brotherhood is, is just crazy, isn't it? And I was like, yeah. I said, unity is a, unity is a, is a fleeting thing, right? She said, well, Mr. Richards, what am I going to do with these boys? What am I going to do with them? I said, Mama, you got to give it time. You got to mix in discipline. You got to love and care and teach them how to sacrifice. And it will all work out. It will all work out. At least we pray it will work out, right? 
Well, today we're going to see in Psalm 133 kind of a similar prayer, that the children of Israel would proclaim, the people of God proclaim as we move towards an opportunity to to engage him and be with him. So we're going to read our scripture today, Psalm 133. So if you would, um, if you're willing and able, stand with me as we read scripture. If this is your first time here at Still City Church, we stand when we read scripture so we posture ourselves um, in a way where we can say we stand on God's word. So this is God's word, the same word that has been read and sung and cried and wept and exclaimed for thousands and thousands of years. So this is the word of the Lord. Psalm 133, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Mount Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. And there, that's where the Lord commanded the blessing. Life forever. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. How blessing it is, how blessed it is for God's people to live in unity. We see your redundant peace here. And if you study God's word, you know that when you see something come up twice or even three times, it's the author's attention, drawing your attention to something very important. So here this says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is. How good, good it is. Let, let us draw our attention to unity. And so often we kind of get the wrong take. The complexity of unity uh, can kind of shield us at times and, and, and um, make us lose our balance at times because we hear stuff like this. And, and this is what really deeply it's saying is how good and pleasant it is to bear the burden of a friend so deeply that your own sorrow increases. How good and pleasant it is to have our normal lives interrupted due to the limitations that come from sacrificial giving. We think unity and we sometimes go the wrong direction and we just want peace. But last week we talked about peace. And peace isn't just this emotional feeling, but it's actually completeness. It's wholeness. It's resting in who God is and what he offered from the very beginning. And so unity can become such a strange thing for us. We, um, we actually see throughout Scripture and throughout history that there's actually more instances of disunity than there is unity. So somewhere we're getting something wrong. Well, in, in the Bible, from the beginning to the end, we see this common theme throughout Scripture of unity. We have a relational God, a united God. We have a God that's a relational creature that, that, that demonstrates perfect unity in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We see that creation wasn't fully finished until there was this demonstration of unity when Adam had Eve. Married people, unity's hard in a marriage, isn't it? Amen. If you're not nodding your head, then it's okay. We'll talk later. But it's hard. Well, then we had Jesus. Jesus had the 12 disciples, Now, these weren't just like really high-achieving kind of people. These were like the land of misfit toys. And here he came in for this relational peace to unify these men for one mission. 
the church, when it was founded, there were 120 people there. It didn't just go to one person. Spirit dropped. There was 120, and then it multiplied. It created this relationship, this need for other people, this unifying, this unifying desire. Eugene Peterson says that Scripture knows nothing of a solitary Christian. Scripture knows nothing of a solitary um, Christian. Saying like solitary Christian is like saying jumbo shrimp. It's like deafening silence or my all-time favorite. It's like saying the Brown Super Bowl. All right? We know how that goes, right? So, but being this desire for unity that God has within his creation The ultimate example of it is the church. And we define the church as this corp, this is a visible form of corporate relationship, a visible form of unity among believers that is charged to carry out Christ's ministry in the world. Our bodies in unity, our people in unity actually demonstrates and shows not individual pieces of us, but actually his body. It projects Jesus when people come and are unified. People from different backgrounds and tribes and tongues and beliefs and everything else, when they come together and fall under and be unified under the God that we serve, the God of Scripture, it actually points to what Jesus did. And we're going to see that kind of come out here in a little bit. But the cool thing is we look at Scripture, we go back and we're like, okay, let's look and see verse 2. It says, we know how good it is because we like unity, we like the peace that it brings, we like the comfort that it brings, but what is it like? And here David is writing this psalm and he says, you know what, this is what it's like. Pay attention to what it's like. It's like the precious oil upon the beard, upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard. Aaron was the great high priest. Is coming down upon the edge of his robes. Now, this, this imagery could be towards the consecration of the great high priest, which we find in Exodus 29. If you want to go read that, it's this just beautiful um, ceremony that, that shows just how important Aaron is in leading the people in worship. They would pour, pour oil upon his head and it would come down. It was really cool, and everybody would cheer and they would eat and they would do still what we do today. And it'd be like, oh, that's awesome. But there was, there's also this like refreshment period that would happen as well as the great high priest had this really hard job where there was sacrifices and there were animals and there was blood. And if you've ever dressed an animal before after you've harvested it, it's not a pretty thing. We're, we're separated from that by buying our meat in the grocery store, but the Levitical priests weren't. And so they needed refreshment at times. They needed reminders of what they were serving. And so they would use oil to go about doing that. To refresh them. This could be a a portrayal and an imagery towards the refreshment. And so this has some level here for David of a spiritual dimension. Unity points to this spiritual refreshment. And so we see some themes begin to come up as we read through the scripture. You know, as we live in unity, there's this consistent opportunity to begin the process of holding space for others and having others hold space for us. Where it's not just all about me, but now we begin to invite each other into each other's spheres. And we, we see that as we, as we unpack this, this illustration. So we see that, that unity is something in this illustration. We know, number one, it's spirit giving. 
If you go through Scripture and you look at times that oil was mentioned, it always had something to do with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. So it had something to do with with delivering the Spirit to someone else. It was always a sign of God's presence and God's Spirit. And it's, it's a doable thing. A human doable thing because Aaron wouldn't dump oil on his own head. Someone else had to do it for him. So someone else is delivering this reminder of the beauty of God's spirit upon you. They're having to put away whatever frustrations they may have to deliver that to you. So it's something that actually we're invited into, this reminder of the beauty of the Holy Spirit. And it would be done when a need would arise. Well, this oil wasn't just oil out of somebody's car, of course, the cheapest kind you could find or used, peanut oil from, or you can't use peanut oil anymore, whatever oil they use in the fry master, but it wasn't used oil. No, this was costly oil. This was precious oil. This was a sacrificial opportunity for me to realize the need of someone else and go and purchase with time, talent, or treasure, or whatever it may be, an oil that could go and be reminding to someone else of the beauty of the Spirit. To humble myself and say, you know what, I want to remind and be in right relationship and restore whoever this person is. Because when this would be done, as we said, this was a renewing thing, a refreshing thing. It was a healing thing. Think about the oil that comes upon your head If you have maybe dry hair or whatever, you put some type of oily shampoo on there and it it, it soothes your hair or soothes your scalp or some type of oily conditioner. A guy with eczema like I have needs something to condition his skin and it's refreshing. But the question then has to be asked, well, if we're refreshing each other, how do we know that each other needs refreshment? Because there's this connection here. I know the person across from me. I know I'm having to live in, in, in community, which then brings about the need for unity. There's this fragrance piece to it, and that's what would make the oil so costly. What does fragrance do? But it removes the stank and the burden of it and replaces it with sweetness. that work, that time that a, a great high priest would spend taking on the burdens of other people, sacrificially taking the time to, to sacrifice animals, restore people's relationship with, with God, he would be refreshed, just like the other priests would do that. Other people need that. This fragrant reminder of the sweetness of who God is and how wonderful he is removing that burden of stank that we have. But how do we know something smells bad? (laughs) You gotta be in proximity. You can't see smell over over FaceTime. You You gotta be within proximity. And then finally for this one, we see that it's an abundant thing. Listen to the language that he says. He said it's like precious oil upon the head, so it starts there. And then it comes down upon the beard. So there's enough to at least get it down to the bottom of the face. But then it doesn't stop there. It goes down and the last statement is coming down upon the edge of his robes. So here this relationship that's demanding unity is abundant. It's deep. 
The oil is enough that it comes down and it covers completely, not just a little bit, not just a little reminder of the Spirit, but it goes all the way down to the edge of his robes, which would be touching the ground. And here this unity is, it covers so much. This relationship covers so much. And then we go into verse 3. It says, it is like, so here it is, it's saying again, the, the unity, the beauty of the unity, the, the how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity, for family to dwell in unity. What is it like, verse 3? It is like the dew of Mount Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. That makes no sense to us. We're geographically challenged already. All right, Most of us can't get around the city of Pittsburgh without a GPS. And I'm kind of one of those. And I've actually, because there's no way to get anywhere in Pittsburgh really easily. All right? And it's both, hill, it's both ways uphill. We know that. But here, it mentions Mount Hermon, which is actually is, is way north in Israel. And it's this beautiful snow-capped mountain in the northern part of Israel. Actually, now it's, it's famous for its ski resorts. In the Middle East, imagine that. And apparently on, on Mount Hermon, in the dry days, it would still have this incredible amount of dew that would, would lay upon the mountain in the early morning. And it was so much dew that it would replenish the water needed for the plants that are upon Mount Hermon. Just incredible amounts of dew. But then it mentions Mount Zion. Well, Mount Zion is actually Jerusalem. Some people say it's where the Temple Mount is, one of the highest points in Jerusalem, which is they're 252 miles apart. All right, so a long way. And here, the, the beauty of the dew that lays upon Mount Hermon is actually transported and moved all the way to Mount Zion and dumped upon Mount Zion. This is where people live. People don't live out in Mount Hermon. People live in and around the Temple Mount because they want to be near the presence of God. So here we're seeing this relational dimension to unity, not just a spiritual dimension of being poured over the great high priest, but also a relational dimension. As we live in unity, there's this amazing opportunity as we live in relationship with each other. So we see in this illustration that unity is actually supernatural. Imagine this. It's the middle of February. Middle of February. We know what the weather in Pittsburgh is like in the middle of February. All right, And we're invited to go to PNC Park, all of us, to fill that place up. Why are we going to fill PNC Park up? Because God has moved the Florida sunshine from Florida and has dumped it right over PNC Park. Come on now, that's pretty good. We would all be there. It's 80 degrees just in PNC Park in the middle of February. Snow everywhere else. And here it is. And so here, this is not necessarily something that people have experienced, but it's pointing to the supernatural process of what God can do through us for unity. Well, it's not just supernatural, but it's also awe-inspiring. Because, man, if God could do something like this, he can do anything. If the grave is empty, then anything is possible, right? So this is where we can kind of see, like, 
this Ephesians 2 with uh, barriers being broken down, the dividing wall, the, the wall between the Jews and the Gentiles that, that keep the Gentiles as outsiders and the Jews as insiders broken down. Because now we can even get sunshine in Pittsburgh in February. How amazing would that be? And God's like, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait until my people are unified. That's what's going to really show if I'm God or not. That's going to show how beautiful I am. I mean, imagine you have Gen Xers and Gen Zers that are actually in a discipling relationship together. Now, that's almost impossible. Let's be real. Think about like two diametrically opposed political ideologies worshiping together. And I'll say, we actually have that at our church. And it's glorious because we're not held by politics. The grave is empty. Anything is possible. You can, enter, you can insert any difference you ever want to here. Men and women, this and that, whatever it may be what you think, what you believe. No, God's people come together in unity to worship. This unity is communal. You think about it. If the, if the, the blessing was poured upon Jerusalem, that's where everyone was, so everyone would benefit from the dew of Hermon on Jerusalem. It'd be like, oh, everybody gets it. But the dryness of Jerusalem mixed with the heavy dew of Herman would create an absolute mess. Welcome to church, ladies and gentlemen. And we have people from all walks of life come together. It can be really messy at times. But he's like, no, no, listen, the unity, the beauty of the unity is like this, it's wonderful. We get to hold space for each other and then finally it's also life-giving. It's life-giving. Think about the times and maybe you've never had this experience before and I pray that we can, we can give this to you. But think about the times that you've had this rousing good time with friends that is just life-giving. There's, it's not the kind of time where you have these fuzzy memories or you have embarrassment or you have things that people can't post on Instagram because you did whatever. There's this fullness of life. There's this beauty that happens when we come together and we unify and we receive the dew that's supposed to be somewhere else, but no, because of what Jesus did for us, we get this opportunity to rest in it. We get to be unified with brothers and sisters and laugh and have a good time and enjoy it. Man, it's amazing. It's so life-giving. It says the dew, the dew from Mount Hermon was life-giving to the dryness of Jerusalem. You know, it says in John 15, 35, it says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, this is Jesus speaking. So we fast forward all the way to the New Testament into the Son of God saying, hey, they're going to know you're my disciples if you do this one simple thing. And we're so quick to think, all right, I know I got to pray good. I got I to pray well. That's what it is. I got to pray well. That's not it. Okay, I got to read my Bible every single day. That's how everybody's going to know that I'm Jesus' disciples by reading his word, right? No. 
All right, I gotta give to the church. That's good and all, but no, that's not it. Well, okay, then it's gotta be dealing with other people. Yeah, it does. So I gotta take care of the orphans and the widows, right? Right, Jesus? No, that's not it. That's important, but that's gonna come from something else. How do we know, how does the outside world, anybody know that we are Jesus' disciples? He says, it's by how you love each other. It's by how you love each other. How you love each other, how you take care of each other. As followers of Jesus Christ, Ed, the entire outside world will know that we love Jesus by simply how we are unified. But we have this huge ache within us. As I said earlier, where there's more disunity examples than there are unity examples. What kills unity in the church? Because there are, there are certain things that are absolute unity killers in the church. So here it is. People are. They're these two things. Number one, people become or are problems to be solved. There's a good chance in here that 100% of you have been looked at as a problem to solve, be solved. You are looking at others as a problem to be solved. Or you think of yourself as a problem to be solved. And that's all you are. You're boiled down to a problem to be solved. Think about the sibling rivalry. There's three siblings. There's one pork chop. There's going to be a perfect distribution of the pork chop, correct? Not a chance. If mama's not around, we're going at it. I had one brother I was bigger, meaner, meaner, and uglier than he was. I would have eaten the pork chop. Sorry. Just was what it was. Well, there are problems to be solved. I want the pork chop. It's my pork chop. Take it for what it is. We create this sibling rivalry. How many times have we created disunity simply because the other person was a problem? Or I thought I was a problem? We become self-absorbed. Or we become self-deprecating. If we're always looked at as a problem to be solved, and that's all we ever think we are, is a problem to be solved. We begin to think of ourselves as disreputable rather than longed for and chosen by God. God that wants to to care for us and love us. The other unity killer is we just be simply become a completer of tasks. We're only valuable if we're a doer, if we can accomplish something. We're like widget makers. People are problems, are they widget makers? One or the other. So if you're really good at making widgets, if you're really good at singing, if you're really good at teaching, if you're really good at praying, if you're really good at whatever, then you're valuable. And so we only look for the ability for people to accomplish something in an institutional sense, and then we value them. That's when we value them if they can do something, or they're a worthless obstacle. And these kind of beliefs, which sadly are so real within God's people, especially in modern American church, 
a huge problem. You see there's an asterisk next to unity killers in the church because actually what that is when we kill unity like this, when we're just thinking of people as problems to be solved and completer of tasks, we're actually diminishing God's image in ourselves and others. We don't realize how much that pushes away what God has actually intended for us through his promises and his truths and his character and who he is. We stand in a God who is gracious and merciful and loving and patient and holy and truthful and faithful. And through Jesus, we get a chance to accept those. We realize our image, that we're not just problems to be solved, that he solved the problem for us. That we're not just completer of tasks, that Jesus completed that task on our behalf. So what are the unity builders? What are some ways that we can fight against that? Well, there's a great passage of scripture and we don't have time to go through it because it would be a whole nother sermon and you don't want to listen that much. It's Philippians 2, 1 through 8. Philippians is an incredible book. Paul is writing to a group of people who is a church in Philippi. And he's praising them for the unity that they have. You see in verse, the first part, he says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the Spirit, intent on one purpose. Demonstrate unity. Demonstrate unity. Great job, Philippian church. Your people from different backgrounds, different belief systems, different socioeconomic statuses, different racial groups that had a lot of tension and hatred towards each other. Great, I'm seeing this unity in you. And he's like, keep building this unity, but do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't think of each other as a problem to be solved that you can solve that problem or just a completer of tasks, but value each other for what God has given you. Don't merely look out for your own personal interest. Don't just think about yourself. Don't just become self-absorbed, but also the interest of others. And then he says this statement that is just beautiful. Verse five, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The greatest example of unity that we can ever see is what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. He dropped every dividing wall. We can say confidently that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So what do we do? We have to make this determination within ourselves as a church, collectively, and as individual people that we will this or I will this. Number one, we're going to submit to God the Father. We're going to look at things through the eyes of God's economy. We're going to submit to God the Father, who he is, what he's expecting for us. That's why we stand when we read God's word, because this is the rock that we go back to, not our feelings, not what our culture is saying. So we submit to what God the Father is saying. We proclaim the finished work of Christ. He's the one that leveled the playing field. We proclaim that as followers of Jesus. It's but through the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives us access to God that we have any of this. And so instead of doing what I want to do, I'm gonna pro proclaim the finished work of Christ. 
I'm going to follow his example. I'm going to give up my rights. I'm going to lay down what I want to build unity in the church. And then finally, and one of my favorites that I'm working through right now just personally is follow the Spirit's leading. Holy Spirit is constantly pointing us back to the goodness of God, sanctifying us, rubbing off the rough edges of who we are so we look more like Christ. And you can see this through this, this church creed in Philippians 2. So what can we do right now to start this process? Well, we say here at Steel City Church that we exist to learn and live the ways of Jesus. We're here to mimic Jesus. Last week we talked about this up process, this enjoying connection with God. This week we're talking about an in process where Jesus connected with his disciples. He had 12. He pulled them in. They were misfits. And he loved them and he cared for them and he discipled them and he challenged them. He pushed them out in the uncomfortable circumstances at times. And he challenged them, invest in each other, guys. Because the way that you love each other is going to show if you're my disciple or not. So we, too, as followers of Jesus, are to invest in each other. That's our in lifestyle. There's two things that come with that. There's being a uniter. There's being a giver. So this is kind of where we can take the litmus test today. Where are you on these continuums? As a uniter, there's three steps here that we've kind of boiled it down to, to join, then to speak, and then to bear. Not bear like polar bear, but bear as in like carry something. Write that down in your notes. So let's start. Let's start with join. All right, make sure this is very clear to us, okay? Going to church makes us a Christian as much as putting our head in the oven makes us a biscuit. All right, think about that. Just because you stick your head in there does not make you a biscuit. Coming to church does not make you a Christian. But we can no more be a Christian and have nothing to do with the fellowship of believers called the church than we can be a person and not be in a family. We have to join something. Every follower of Jesus, the moment that you were you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are entered into the body of Christ, the global body of Christ. How do we realize the, the global body of Christ? We can't be in all places at all times like God can. So we join a local body of Christ. And we jump into the messiness of life with the local body of Christ. And it is messy at times. But your first step to being a uniter is to join Scripture knows nothing of an isolated Christian, a solitary Christian. So we start with the joining. Have you joined? Have you jumped into something? Are you putting yourself out there to join with other people? Then we move into another step, which is speak. This is, it should say more or less speak and listen. Because here, this is when, as we join, we then have a process to be around other people, spiritually and relationally, to begin the process of speaking the truth in love to each other. We begin the process of building unity with each other. So the question is, are you speaking? Are you in a, in a position where you can speak truth 
with love into someone else? And are you in a position where you can have truth spoken to you with love and grace? Grace and truth. Are you there? This is where the cap of the oil gets cracked. This is where the process begins. This is where restoration can happen. This is where redemption can happen. This is where forgiveness begins to become real. When you're struggling with something, someone has done something to you, and your response is anger or frustration or bitterness, and someone speaks truth into you, and you're like, oh, oil of the Spirit comes over and it's like, no, I need to forgive because I've been forgiven. I need to love because I have love, because I have been loved. I need to extend grace because grace has been extended to me. I can't tell you how many times this has happened with me where another person, even in this church, has spoken truth to me in grace. We're only halfway there. You join, you speak, and then you bear. This is where we get a chance to bear each other's burdens. We take this step with someone else. And this is where we invite someone to put their burden on each other. I said at the very beginning how good and pleasant and beautiful and blessed it is that when we get to bear the burden of a friend so deeply that our own sorrow, our own sorrow increases. It's not just their problem to be fixed. But now it's my problem to join in with. To walk with them. To carry it with them. To pick them up when they can't walk anymore. We get to bear each other's burdens. That's when the world looks at the church and turns their head sideways and like, I don't know what these people are doing, but I want someone to bear my burdens with. I need that. That's what I'm looking for. I can't do this life alone. We become uniters with each other. Because we're letting the Spirit work. We become givers. Where are you on your giving pathway? On your trajectory of being a giver? We have been given so much. The first place to start is to start. Take the first step. We acknowledge what God has done for us. The incredible overflow that he's poured out upon us. And grace and mercy and truth and and patience and love. And blessings, tangible blessings. We're one of the most blessed societies in all of history. So we ask ourselves the question, where am I giving of the time that I have been given, the talent that I have been given, and the treasure that I have been given. How am I using that? How should I start pouring that out as it has been poured out on me? And when we start, starting is good. Doing it once is one thing, doing it consistently is another. It becomes a practice. So in giving of your time to other people, to hold space for other people, are you being consistent? 
It's hard to be consistent. When we stop thinking about people as being problems to be fixed or just valuable for what they do, but no, actually holding space for them so we actually become shaped in the process, it's hard. Are we being consistent with that? Are we just tipping just to make ourselves feel good? Oh, God, here you go. You give me a little bit. Here's a little bit back. Thank you. Here's a little bit of time. Here's a little bit of talent. Here's a little bit of treasure. I feel better now. Are you just meeting those felt needs that kind of check the boxes that you approve of? Or are you consistently giving to the point that it's becoming a habit? It's like, you know what, even when it's hard, here it is. Even when I'm busy, here's my time. Even when I don't feel like it, here's my talent. Even when I just don't see how it's all gonna work out, here's my treasure. Lay it out there. Because then we move into sacrifice. That's when we steward our resources. We don't just use our resources, but we steward, intentionally steward our resources in a manner that trades their self-gratifying use. We take money, and it's not about what we can do with it, but it's now we can trade it for a larger God-glorifying purpose. We take our time, and it's not just about my time and my thing and my process, but we now trade it for a God-glorifying purpose. Our talent, not just about how good I am at my profession, but I'm now gonna use this for a God-glorifying purpose. Where's the sacrifice? Does it hurt at times? You know, personally, I I would not be standing here if it wasn't for um, men and women who were willing to give of their time and their talent to me. Uh, There were men in my church growing up that were very purposeful in pouring into me that wouldn't let me slide, that, that were always around. They weren't perfect. They, golly, they weren't perfect. And they, but they would tell me they weren't perfect. And they would invite me into that imperfection and that messiness at times. And they would encourage me and press me and push me. At times when I needed refreshment, they would seemingly, figuratively pour the oil over my head in abundance. Many of them, uh, as I, we were making this move up here, they were the, the people that were individual supporters of our church. Helped pay the bills in the interim. Because they had taken the steps of, of being, um, you know, uniters. They had joined in, they had spoken life into me, and they were, they were willing to, to bear a burden. Many of them have come up to encourage and challenge and push and listen. And there was a time in, in our early marriage, mine and Rachel's, where um, we had to make a decision financially of what to give to the church. And you know, time was kind of easy for me and talent. <laughs> I'd like to say I don't have a lot, but um, I had kind of found my niches where to give of my talent, but m- money was hard for me. It was a challenge for me. And we had been challenged uh, in the church that, that I grew up in to, to give a, a certain percentage, not an amount, but a percentage. And it was, 
my conviction and going through that process of trying to decide what to give with Rachel. And man, I was looking at this percentage and, and my conviction was to give it of my gross pay, not after the government took their share and everything had come out, but before. And to lay out this percentage, that way it wasn't this fixed amount, but you know, when things were good, it went up. And I remember tears, and, and it was hard. And, oh, man. But what a blessing it's been with, with Rachel's very patient guidance of me. You know, we have been through sacrifice financially and even through time and, and treasure, been able to enter into really cool opportunities of ministry with people. Or we'll get support letters or prayer letters and they'll be able to share times that people have come to know Jesus. And it's like, man, what a blessing. What an opportunity. You know, to give of my time, talent, and treasure and then see nothing that I did. My eyes wouldn't have been attuned to it. I'll tell you, as a pastor... It's, I, I so badly want to stand up here and say, I, don't, I, don't, like, I wish we could take the giver thing off. I wish I could. I wish I could erase it. But so often we hold on to our time and our talent and our treasure and like, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. But when we release it, man, it's incredible how God opens our eyes to various things. He makes us pay attention. Sometimes it hurts. Yep, it does. There are times because of the people that have committed to join, speak, bear, start, consistent, sacrifice, all that kind of stuff, to be a uniter and giver in my life, if they wouldn't have been sacrificial and they wouldn't have been willing to bear, they wouldn't have been there in the hard times. And so we rest in this. Psalm 133, how blessed, how good, how pleasant, how wonderful it is. When we as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus join together in unity. 